Hey everyone, Andy Kay here. I help to manage these meetups behind the scenes and I'm going to give a brief introduction before I turn it over to Joe. Actually, let me give an introduction for Joe first. So beginning in 1972, Joe is a student of Cho Yung Chungpa, Osil Tenzin, Changu Rinpoche, and, and Panlab Rinpoche. Uh, Andrew and Joe both did three-year retreat together at Gampo Abbey and they met in a class on debate that Joe taught at the Natarka Institute in 1997. Um, let's see what else I have here. So also Joe has um, a YouTube channel for his guided meditation. So uh, following my introduction, I'll share that link in the chat. And let's get back to it. So thank you everyone for joining us live and welcome to our 30th virtual weekly hangout. Just a reminder that we'll leave plenty of space in these meetups for discussion and Q&A. So if you have questions for Joe or a question is sparked during his talk, you can use the raise your hand feature. And at the right time, I'll give you the audio to ask your question, or you can type your question in the chat section. And at the right time, I'll read your question to Joe. And just a final reminder from me, Andrew's doing his lucid dreaming, uh, a deeper dive retreat that starts tomorrow. So there's still time to sign up and I'll put the link for that in the chat as well. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Without further ado, here's Joe. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see you all. Uh, Andrew uh, asked me to cover at the last minute. He is uh, doing a deep dive to get ready for his deep dive. Um, we had talked, I, I was uh, helping him with his program last uh, fall in Sedona, and uh, we had planned on doing it together, uh, but he, uh, we were talking and he was feeling like it was uh, a lot of new material and a little, uh, and he said, uh, probably easier if we're there in person and we can kind of, uh, uh, figure it out as we go, but it was a little much to try to plan it all out. So uh, he's decided, in, in in case you were expecting me to co-teach that with him, I, I was going to not really co-teach it. I was going to be a supporting teacher leading some of the meditations. Um, and that might still happen if he needs me to cover, but uh, basically um, Andrew is going to be uh, going solo on this program um, that's that's coming up and uh, I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy it. So um, for today, what uh, um, I need to end after one hour. So what I'm going to do is an abbreviated version of the introduction, introductory meditation that I do. I chat for a little, just uh, briefly and then uh, take your questions, and I look forward to um, to doing the best I can to answer them. So let's get ready by sitting up in good posture, upright but not rigid, and to start with, just let your eyes gently close. We're going to do a briefer version of this than I've done in the past. So uh, on your own, just do a body scan from the top of your head to your toes, just shaking out or intensifying and releasing, or just 
relaxing any areas of excess tension that you don't need to hold your posture. Let your breath flow naturally. Top of your head, all the way down, looking at the trouble spots of jaw and shoulders. Deep belly. Any place where you're holding tension, maybe even don't even realize it. Take a couple of breaths and let your awareness drift down. Drift down in your body, gradually resting down in, in the tantric tradition called the secret center in Japan, it's the Hara. In, in China, it's the Dantian, that uh, power source deep in our torso, a couple of inches below the navel, just in front of your spine. Let your awareness rest there. And let yourself sink down and feel like you're sinking down and merging with the earth so that your body is part of the earth and like a mountain that is part of the earth but extends upward, you are in your upright, majestic posture. Let your breath come and go naturally like the wind. Let your mind be open to whatever you're going to experience without partiality or bias, like the sky. Body like a mountain, breath like the wind, mind like the sky. And you can let your eyes gently open partway so that you're looking downward at about a 45 degree angle. Just be aware of your body, the space that you're sitting in, the breath coming and going, feeling like it's filling you as you breathe in, emptying as you breathe out. With each out breath, just settling deeper, letting your mind rest on the sensation of filling and emptying with the breathing. And if your mind wanders into a daydream, when you realize it, it's a moment of waking up. Rather than being frustrated, you should celebrate that you have this natural wakefulness. Your mind does come back. You wake up and smile with a sense of humor because the mind also does wander. And return to awareness of your breathing. Now raise your gaze, looking straight ahead above your device if you have a device straight in front of you. And pay a little more attention to the out-breath. Focus on the out-breath going out. And as your breath mixes with the space in the room, 
Let your mind expand to the space of your environment, in front, behind, to all sides, above and below. Notice your sense perceptions. And we can use the tendency of the mind to wander without fighting it, but let it wander in the present moment among your sense perceptions. Notice colors, shapes, shades of light and dark in your vision. Relax your field of vision, open up to your full peripheral vision. Listen for sounds near and far, loud and soft, high and low pitch. Smells, any tastes that might be left over from your lunch or the tea or coffee you've been drinking. Your body. These are our usual five sense perceptions. But we also perceive our, our thoughts. So that's the sixth sense of awareness of mental events, mental thoughts and feelings. Now, the next few breaths, breathe out and aware of whatever sense perceptions your mind is resting on. Aware of your own thoughts, feelings, taste, smell, sounds, sights. Feel your sense of presence in space. Let your mind extend out in all directions. You're being in the space of the environment. Now we'll do a, a little brief compassion meditation. So important right now in these times, crazy times when everyone in the world seems to be struggling. And start with yourself, any negative feelings you're having. Uh, if it's helpful, you can imagine a beautiful clear crystal in your heart center that has transformative power Anything negative that you gather into that crystal instantly transforms into the opposite positive quality. So any negative feelings or illness you have in your body, in your mind, any, any negativity in your being, as you breathe in, imagine that you're gathering that into the crystal in your heart center. As you breathe out, the crystal radiates out the cool moonlight of kindness and the opposite qualities. If you're feeling guilt, breathe that in and breathe out forgiveness. If you're feeling frustration, breathe that in and breathe out patience and so on.
In that way, you gather in your negativity and radiate out caring, loving kindness for yourself. And then we extend that to others, beginning with your loved ones, family and friends. As you breathe in, gather all of their suffering and struggle into the crystal in your heart center. As you breathe out, the crystal radiates out that cool moonlight of kindness that fills all their beings with freedom from suffering and struggle, with health and happiness. Then expand that circle further and further. People you like, don't have feelings about, or have difficulties with. And, and for those particularly include yourself so that any difficulties you're gathering in their struggle and your own. And it transforms and radiates out filling you and them with kindness compassion, peace, health, and happiness. And as best you can go beyond that to all creatures, great and small, all living beings. Breathe in all their suffering and struggle. As the Dalai Lama says, all beings want to be free from the suffering all beings want happiness. Gather that in and radiate out to them that cool moonlight of kindness that fills beings everywhere with peace, health, and happiness. Now let go of the visualization. Just be with your breathing for a couple more moments. Feeling present, feeling grounded, feeling open. Thank you. Well, the only thoughts that I had for today were the, um, the question of something that we've talked about before called the spiritual bypass. And, and that is not separating our world into pigeonholes not saying, well, here's my Dharma practice, here's my meditation practice, but then here's the world out there that I have to struggle with. And the bypass is saying, you know what? Uh, everything's impermanent and everything's a dreamlike illusion. So there's really nothing I have to worry about. And there's nothing I can do about it. Whatever happens, happens. Um, but that's not entirely true. 
because we have to understand that there is absolute and relative truth. And if we get attached to the absolute truth that says, well, everything's empty, everything's a dream, so nothing really matters, then we're, we're ignoring the relative truth of how much suffering there is in the world. And if we get caught up just in the relative truth and, uh, and, and run around trying to take care of everything and becoming tremendously frustrated because we, don't, we lose our perspective, um, that's missing the point as well. So we have to fuse those two things that while we understand the illusory nature of things, still being suffer. And one of the first things that I was taught by Trungpa Rinpoche was that as you progress on the path and begin to see how much unnecessary suffering you cause yourself, that's the first step. You see how much unnecessary suffering you cause yourself. You see the the habits that keep coming around and around that we get stuck in. When you have that perspective and that realization, those little moments that we have when we can step out of this, the self-defeating cycles we get in, at that moment, when we have that moment of relief, what we see in that moment of relief is others. And the, those who don't know that there can be a moment of relief, those who are experiencing the claustrophobic struggle of suffering, and those who don't realize that, that they are perpetuating their own suffering by the ways that they're trying to get out of their suffering. Now, I have this gray hair, I'm older than most of you, but um, we used to have the uh, very common was this little bamboo woven tube. Let's see if I can bring something up like that. And it was, a, it was a tube you stuck your fingers in. And because it was woven, as you pulled out, it got narrower. So the harder you tried to pull out, the more stuck you got. And that is really how so many people live their lives. Anytime they feel stuck, they try to get out of it in a way that gets themselves more stuck. And if you see that, a, a natural compassion arises. And that's how we know that, that that's really our true heart, is our true heart of basic goodness, or bodhicitta, wisdom, awakened heart, that we are awake to others' suffering and moved by it. And so that's really what I wanted to share, that we have to, we can both recognize the illusory dreamlike quality of everything and therefore not take ourselves so seriously, but also recognize that other people don't see that. 
and we can take helping them seriously. So that's my <clears throat> little riff, as Andrew would say. And um, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, uh, this is our opportunity. Thanks, Joe. I do have um, two questions I can start us off with. Um, this first one says, I would be grateful if you could speak more deeply on the subject of dedicating merit. Hmm. <clears throat> well, I, I'm, I will start with a story from the time of the Buddha. Uh, um, a, uh, in Northern India, the Buddha wandered around uh, a great area, always by foot, walking around uh, and teaching. And um, <laughs> uh, he was at one teaching place where there were hundreds and hundreds of people there. And a wealthy patron, as his offering to the Buddha and the Sangha, the community of practitioners, offered a meal for these hundreds and hundreds of people, paid for a meal for these hundreds and hundreds of people. And uh, typically, the Buddha would give a recognition of the person who had gained, uh, accrued the most merit for their good deeds. And so everybody expected the Buddha to, at that gathering, to thank the patron and say, thank you for your generous offering and you have received the most merit of anybody here. But when the patron came up, the Buddha said, well, you have the second most merit of anybody here. And the patron said, who has more merit? I gave, I fed everyone. And he said, and he, the Buddha pointed to this little old lady sitting there and he said, she has the most because she was rejoicing in how much merit you were going to get for your generosity. So that rejoicing in others' good deeds is actually even more merit than doing good deeds yourself. So what we want to do when we practice we acknowledge that um, the practice is going to produce benefit for us. But it's of even more benefit if we have the aspiration or the wish that others receive that benefit. And so that's what it means by dedic dedicating the, so we say by this merit, by the merit of the actions I've done, may all attain enlightenment and be free from suffering. And that ties back in to our motivation. And, and this is important. And, and that is that in, in terms of dedicating the merit, that, um, that whenever there is that opportunity 
for merit, that uh, for practice, opportunity for practice, we want to go into the practice, whether it's um, activities, uh, sitting meditation, or activities that we're doing um, in post-meditation, we want to have the benefit of what Trung Rinpoche calls pure motivation. And that is that everything that we do in our practice is to attain enlightenment, but the purpose of attaining that enlightenment is not just for our own benefit, but in order to benefit all beings. So that motivation, it creates a sandwich. And uh, in the tradition, it's called good at the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end. That, the, the, that our actions and our practice is sandwiched by the start of pure motivation of what our intention is and the finish of dedicating the merit for that action in accord with our motivation. So I hope that's helpful. I have um, a private chat question that came in from Beatrice. It says, would you please discuss transcending the cycle of birth and death? Oh, thank you for uh, just picking a small topic. The cycle of birth and death. Well, there are a couple of different ways to understand this. And I, and I have a story that goes, that goes along with it. Um, we can look at it uh, at different levels of analysis, levels of understanding, uh, and different perspectives. On the uh, gross level, we take birth as a particular being live our lives, and then die. In the consideration of uh, continuity of consciousness, if you believe in continuity of consciousness, that consciousness then <clears throat> goes through the bardo or the in-between state, and then takes birth again in a particular form, lives that life, and then dies. Now on a, a more psychological level, you could say, we take birth in a particular, uh, oh, uh, hang on a second. On, and on the gross level, uh, in the cosmology of the Eastern wisdom traditions out of India, we talk about the different realms of existence in the universe. Uh, traditionally six realms, the God realm, the jealous God realm, human realm, the animal realm, the realm of hungry ghosts or spirits, and hell realm. And so we uh, cycle through these realms. The God realm is a pleasurable uh, experience of, of pleasure, but as the time in the God realm starts to degrade, 
and one doubts and tries to struggle and hold on to pleasure, then they plummet down into one of the other realms. The, uh, the different realms go through their life cycle and then based on the karma that they create while they're in that realm, propels them either to rebirth either in that realm or another one. Now, that's on the macro level, cosmic level, cosmology. On the psychological level, well, the God realm is an experience of pleasurable existence. But, and the hell realm is an experience of totally painful claustrophobic existence. They say in the hell realm, basically, you, you're in so much pain that you radiate aggression, but that aggression just bounces back from the environment on you. And so it continually fuels itself and builds itself more and more and more and more and more. So all of these different realms have characteristics. God realm is, ple is pleasurable. The jealous God realm, uh, you could say, is the... Uh, uh, the heavy duty corporate world where there's a totem pole and you're always trying to get above the person that's above you and you're worried that the person below you is trying to get above you. And so it's the um, Sanskrit term is Asura, A-S-U-R-A. And it is uh, a paranoid competitive realm. Then we have the human realm marked by desires. We have the animal realm that is caught up in thick habitual patterns of doing the same thing the same way all the time. <laughs> I think of the, um, the movie uh, Groundhog Day. I don't know if you've ever seen, seen that movie, but he's, he, he's complaining to these guys who, who work in a, a factory in a, in a town and they're doing the same thing every day, all day. And he says, can you believe it? The torture of that existence to that I get up every day and it's the same every single day. And they're looking at each other like, yeah, yeah we, get we get it. So that's that, that animal realm quality. The, uh, the hungry spirit or hungry ghost realm, they're, they're depicted as having a mouth the size of a needle's eye and a stomach the size of an ocean. So they're never satisfied never satisfied. And so that's from heaven realm all the way to, to hell realm. And so on a cosmic level, we go through, beings go through these. On, an, on a, a psychological level, we have moments when we're completely happy and pleasurable. The, the thing about all of these realms and the way we move from birth to death is that whatever we're experiencing, we get attached to life being that way. We get attached to life being that way. And so we want consistency. We want it to not change. So we act out of that same mode, whether it's relating with the world on the basis of aggression or whether it's passion or whether it's ignorance, jealousy, pride, any of those. We operate on that way thinking, this is how I'm gonna survive in the world. The problem is the world keeps changing. We keep going straight. The world 
goes a different direction. Even if we start in the same direction, we start going and the world goes differently. And as the split between how we're relating to the world and how things actually are get further and further and further apart, our strategies for fighting impermanence break down. So essentially, that's what we're all trying to do is deny the three marks of existence, uh, permanent uh, suffering, impermanence, and, uh, and egolessness. Those are the three marks of that there's no ind separate individual existence, everything's impermanent, and attachment to uh, a separate existence leads to suffering. So as we fight these, our existence becomes more and more tenuous. And then we die to that psychological attitude of relating with life and take on another one. And that's how we cycle through the realms of psychological existence. And then on a micro level, moment to moment, we are a different person every single moment. So we die to the present moment and take birth in the next. So even our moment to moment existence is impermanent. You can't even break down how small that moment of time is. So that, that's the cycle of birth and death. And the story I wanted to tell was, I was at the first seminar I attended with Trin, by Trungpa Rinpoche and it was called the Six Realms Seminar. And he went through all these realms of existence. And then he went through the psychological ones. Um, as, he went through it as psychological ones. And he said, the Buddha, there's a Buddha in each realm that works with beings. And the Buddha in the God realm uh, holds a, a musical instrument to seduce them out of their absorption in pleasure. The Buddha in the hell realm holds fire and ice as contrast to the hot and cold hells. In the, in the hungry ghost realm, the Buddha has food that they can't deny that there is nourishment there, that they can be nourished. The uh, Asura realm or jealous God realm, the Buddha holds a sword and battles them into exhaustion of their, their paranoia and jealousy. And in the animal realm, the Buddha holds a, a scripture or a book trying to awaken them from their ignorance. So um, all of these psychological presentations were made. And I raised my hand and I asked Trungpa Rinpoche, I said, you went through five of the realms. What is the Buddha in for the human realm hold? And he said, a begging bowl. It was the Buddha. And I got this, whoa, this confluence of psychology and cosmology all happened at once. And it was kind of mind blowing. In fact, I think I remember putting my hands on my head to keep the top of it from blowing off at that moment. So um, that was the experience with Trungpa Rinpoche, truly mind blowing. Whew. There you go. All right. Um, Barry has a follow-up question about merit. Can it be lost if you don't dedicate it? Uh, I would say no. 
it, but by dedicating it, you multiply its power tremendously. So yeah, doing something, you know, meditating for, your, for yourself to um, calm your parent, your, your, your uh, emotional upheavals. And we talk about the Dharma uh, and the teachings um, having the purpose of calming conflicting emotions and clarifying uh, primitive beliefs about reality. So when we practice to calm those conflicting emotions, well, I like to point out that there's immediate benefit um, to, uh, for the merit of doing that. In fact, when I would do um, introductions to meditation, sometimes people would ask and they'd say, you know, um, how long will it take to uh, gain some benefit from this practice? And I said, well, if you sit for 20 minutes, you immediately gain benefit because that's 20 minutes that you've taken yourself out of circulation and uh, stopped causing trouble for yourself and others for those 20 minutes. <laughs> so you have that immediate benefit of not being out there causing trouble. So yes, and, and there you go. It's a benefit to yourself and to others immediately. If you calm the con your conflicting emotions, when you enter into a situation with others and you don't and you aren't so reactive, they get the benefit of that. So there is that benefit, but when you do it with the attitude of doing it for more than yourself, it, it orients your being toward benefiting others so that it aligns you with that motivation that we talked about at the beginning. And therefore it multiplies the value of whatever practice you've done And it multiplies the power of it because it includes others. But if you forget to dedicate the benefit, that doesn't mean that it's lost. But it is helpful to have the discipline of sitting down with that pure motivation and remembering to de dedicate the benefit afterwards. All right. This is a question from Tim. It says, do you think that Buddhism and Hinduism are basically the same except for the terminology? I had more exposure to the Hindu yoga systems in the past, but now I'm getting more exposed to the Buddhist ideas and I'm seeing many similarities. Um, yes, I think that from my understanding, uh, and Andrews used this term, Buddha was the ultimate rebel. Uh, basically, some of the terms in the Hindu tradition, and, I, and this is not my expertise, please understand that, not my expertise, but um, they talk about the Atman or universal self. And the Buddha, said that creates this sense of 
thingness and solidity that gets in the way. So I'm proclaiming anatman or no self. The Buddha also was rebelling against the caste system that was part of the Hindu tradition. But I, I want to distinguish between the um, essence of a teaching and how it's put into practice by the practitioners. And you can see the different forms that different uh, religious traditions have taken. But there's a, a saying in the uh, Lojong slogans, in the uh, slogans on mind training, that all dharmas are agreed on one point, which means all true teachings are agreed on one point. And that is uh, impermanence, including the impermanence of uh, an existent, continuously existing self. Now, the people in the Hindu tradition might say, no, there is a self. And in the Christian tradition, we'll say there is this soul that continues on. So to the extent that that's a difference, um, that's one of the that's one of the differences. But Hindu Buddhism grew out of the environment, and I don't know if it would be called Hinduism, but it was the uh, Vedic tradition, the tradition of the Vedas, at that time, and the and the the notion of a caste system was a social convention that the Buddha wanted to transcend. So I think it, it, I would like to encourage you to look into that um, for yourself and see what the teachings are. Because, you know, if you talk to a, a person in the Hindu tradition and you say, well, I'm a Buddhist and we don't believe in a self, the Hindu might say, what is this Buddha nature thing you talk about? that everybody has. Everybody has this Buddha nature thing. Hey, if you have Buddha nature, that's what we in the Hindu tradition call a self. You see, it's the same. And then the, so, so people have their own understanding. And in fact, within the Buddhist tradition, there are schools that talk about Buddha nature as and then schools that say, well, we don't want to talk about Buddha nature because that can get confused with this idea of a self. So it's really always working with what is. And, um, and I encourage you to explore the traditions and how they're presented from their own adherence, because it's really easy for someone else to point out the differences. But they may not be as different as, as people think. Unless you create fixed ideas and get attached to them. I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Joe. Um, this is a question from Birdie. <clears throat> How does this quote entity or being which moves from realm to realm differ from the Christian soul? Good question. 
again, I'm not a theological expert, so I don't know a, uh, um, what a Christian would think of as soul, but in the uh, mundane Christian tradition, a lot of people think that it's individual and it's got one life and it comes into this world and it's and it goes on and then goes to heaven or to hell or purgatory in between so um uh, this individuality and and one one existence would be a, would be a difference but the um in the buddhist tradition what goes from one life to the next is described best by a metaphor of a flame going from candle to candle. So you have a flame on a candle and you think of the flame as this consciousness and the candle as where it's located. And then the, that candle goes is lights another candle and it in lighting it it goes out and the other candle is as the flame now is that the same flame or is it a different flame or is it both the same and different or neither the same and different you see you can't grasp it with your uh Aristotelian intellect. And we say Aristotelian because basically uh, from Aristotle, things were either, uh, either A or not A. They couldn't be both. And so it's kind of mutually exclusive. So you'd say, well, either it's the same flame or it's a different flame, but it can't be both. Well, can it or not? So we, we leave it as not something that you can grasp and hold on to, but it is, uh, another way to think of it is, um, do you know that, that uh, little device that has, uh, it's a frame with uh, five strings coming down from it, each one with a steel ball at the end. And you lift one end and it comes down and the other end goes up. And the balls in the middle don't move. Well, how did the energy move across from this ball to that ball when, without touching each other? It's that kind of notion of momentum carrying through. Uh, karmic momentum, you could say. I, I'm pr pretty sure that won't be satisfying as an answer. But that's because there isn't a satisfying answer. All right. Um, a quick comment from Marilyn. Um, when you were talking about, you're, you mentioned Trungpa said that the human realm was what? Question mark? Oh, I see. Um, mark, uh, each realm is marked by a particular um, uh, negative, emo or not negative, but an emotional quality. And so, uh, connected with uh, passion, attachment, aversion, or ignorance. Uh, so the God realm is attachment to pleasure. 
the human realm is called the realm of desire. Um, and it said, again, there's a little more on that, that the human realm is where uh, the only place where enlightenment can take place because of the contrast that all the other realms are so absorbed in their emotional energy that there's, there's no contrast, but the human realm has happiness and suffering. And that contrast allows for wakefulness. And, and one thing I wanted to say uh, while, I, while I think of it, when we talk about meditation and moments of wakefulness that I was describing earlier, um, the way my teacher, the Vajra Regent, talked about that, uh, that we do our practice and grow spiritually is that we do this, we do our practice so that these glimpses of wakefulness, these little glimpses get extended and get a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer so that they become more continuous, but not, not continuous, but uh, more of our existence, more of, the, uh, of our experience. And I remember Trungpa Rinpoche, when somebody asked him, do you remember when you attained enlightenment? And he said, I don't remember a particular moment of attaining enlightenment, but I just know that before I had flashes of nirvana and now I have flashes of samsara. So do we identify with the wakefulness or do we identify with what we get caught up in? I see a note from Penny J. Do you see that the Hindu? So that's an interesting one. When a Hindu says consciousness, they mean mind. When a Buddhist says consciousness, they're talking about the nature of mind or awareness. Yeah, that that is interesting. And from the the Mahamudra or Buddhist point of view, you would, you would say, you, you see, this may be, you may be talking about consciousness as the contents of mind and uh, awareness as the container of those consciousness. But we talk about that the, the essence of mind is empty. It's non-existent as a thing. It is no thing. Um, its nature is luminous. And that is that even though it isn't a thing, it's still appearances arise. And then that the manifestation is unobstructed. Uh, and, and that is that the manifestation of those appearances uh, aren't blocked by, again, blocked by anything. So we would talk about mind as the container and mental consciousnesses as what arise in the mind, as opposed to consciousness and mind being one and the same. There's, um, there's another chat question. I guess we have time for one or two more, right, Joe? Yeah, one more. And then unfortunately I do have to go. All right. Um, this is a chat question. You could probably see it. It's from Greg. Um, 
he asks, how does the relative truth that all compounded things are impermanent and dependently arisen and the luminous and clear empty nature of mind fit in? Um, that kind of matches what uh, I was just talking about. And that is that compounded things are uh, the contents of mind, of what arise in it. And the luminous and clear empty nature of mind is the container. It's the capacity for lumin the luminous means clear. It's the capacity for knowing. And that's not a thing. Compounded things, you even said in your, your, your note in the chat, compounded things means everything that has come together as a compound or put together as a thing, it will disintegrate and only exists as a thing independent on something else. But the nature of mind is a potentiality not a thing. That's why when we talked, uh, I think it was last time we talked about the, the, the verse in the Buddhist tradition, um, the nature of thoughts is dharmakaya, nothing whatever, but everything arises from it. Dharmakaya means the body of uh, things as they are. And things as they are, or the form of thing, things as they are. Things as they are, are appearances it appears, but it doesn't have a substantial uh, existence on its own. That's why it's relative appearance. And I do want to answer the question from Marilyn. She wanted to know what blew my mind. What blew my mind was when I asked the question about what the psychological symbol of the wakefulness in these psychological realms was, and he answered with an actual human being holding an actual thing, which made me say, oh, so they're not just psychological realms, but they're real actual realms of existence in the cosmos. And, and, it, and everything, it was, like the, it was like the signals crossing in Star Wars. <laughs> So I hope that that was helpful. Um, it's great being with everybody. Uh, and I, all of you who are attending the program these next couple of weekends, I hope you enjoy it. Um, and I think as we've done before, let us dedicate the merit. So you can repeat after me, uh, I'll, I'll do it in phrases. May the practice we have just done be of benefit to others as well as myself. Thanks, Joe. See everyone I'll, next week. I'll stay on a little bit and read any, any other comments people have. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>